You're listening to the Driven by Design Awards Wrap. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me today as my design giant is Shirley Lee Ryan. Shirley, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, you haven't been had yet. Oh, <laughs> is that how this is going to go down? All right. No, I don't know. Actually, for listeners, we've we've both been through a typhoon today, so it's it's a really strange day. We're in Hong Kong. There's been a Force Ten uh, typhoon that's come through. Everything's a bit upside down, isn't it? It's very strange. Now, Shirley, your profile tells me, your LinkedIn profile tells me that you're the head of experience design at Isabar. What does the head of experience design do? Well, like I'd say to my great auntie Maud at a wedding, I figure out ways to make things that make people's lives better. Okay, so so you're working out how to make things better for people at weddings does that mean you shoot the wedding singer or do you make sure the best man doesn't give the speech or is that just have i taken it too literal i think you've taken that too literally <laughs> okay um, i think it's people in general so uh experience design is really a very broad perspective on thinking about the things that we make and the impact that they have on people's lives so we had a little bit of a pre-chat before the way we always do and we were talking about the difference of experiences which are authentic or if they're manufactured. And we also talked about the idea of agency or actually not having agency, being a spectator in a crowd and, and, and getting something delivered to you versus trying to go do something. And I think as we go through today, we're going to actually come across that a bit more. But why don't we go get into our projects here and we can start to have a look at that now. You're based here in Hong Kong. You also spend a lot of time in planes and hotels in different parts of the world. Have you been to Sydney recently? I was in Sydney recently. I was there about three weeks ago. Okay. So down on uh, 200 George Street in Sydney, uh, the team at Mervac, uh, AMP Capital and EY have put this amazing um, centre together. Have you seen it from the street? I have not seen it from the street, but I'm looking at photos of it, and it looks very pretty. So this is this is one of these interesting buildings that's got a it's got a range of layers to it. So it's just gorgeous to go look at. So you could say that's pretty nice to um, start with. It's got this beautiful um, uh, plinth that comes up, and, and it just rises out of the ground, and that has to go do with because of its historic site. But then it's also got this really high energy efficiency side to it, which is that they've worked out how to go put multiple layers of glass to make sure that they're then getting you know, the thermal properties and the, the blocking that's meant to happen between the various layers of glass. It gets up to a six-star rating. So it's got all these really ra nice rational things to it. What I think is fantastic about it is it's actually a proposition to Sydney that you can go put new buildings which are highly stylish, highly efficient, right in the historic downtown area. I, I think it's a, a beautiful building done here by the team at FJMT. It's certainly a lovely building and um, the layering of different textures throughout the building is, is quite unusual. I mean, even the shape of the building is quite unusual, to be honest. Mm -hmm. That it, it has a almost art deco feel in a modern way, which is quite, I think it's quite interesting for a sustainable building Having worked in a, a sustainable building myself in Sydney, I worked in the, the what's known as the Google building for quite a while, mm -hmm. uh, which was the most sustainable building in Australia at one point. Sometimes there's a trade-off with sustainable buildings. So you get some things that are really great that are fantastic for the environment, but they may not be as usable 
as as they might appear. And also, I think that sometimes the the design suffers a little bit because of sustainability. It can, or it has in the past. But um, in terms of aesthetics, it doesn't look like this is suffering at all. And I, and I think that comes down to then about some values that people are putting into the building. And, and so is the proposition that it's actually meant to have the smallest footprint on our on our environment? Is it meant to be the most, um, as I say, amenable workplace to be in? Is it meant to be a statement building that says something about pride and the prestige of the building? I think what they've been able to go do with this building here is that they've been able to bring those three values together and try to you know, go very high up on the scale. I think it's a really good example for us as a, as a proposition that you can have if you've actually thought, planned and worked out what the values are behind the project that you're trying to execute. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, it, certainly um, the building itself seems to have those qualities. It'd be very interesting to understand what the inside of the building is like and what the experience for people who actually work there would be. The architects uh, at FJMT, they've got a really long haul practice on making sure that they don't just make beautiful shells, that they also get the inside of the building to work well. And then what we've also got to go think about is that all of the tenants that are in there go do their own interior design and their own interpretation of the floors that they go let. So you've got that second layer of execution that takes place. So beautiful building. I'm going to keep us moving on and we'll get across to Indigo Slam here. I just love a project which is called Indigo Slam. I, when I first saw it, I thought it must have been PepsiCo bringing in a new sort of soft drink. Um, then I went and looked at it again. I went, hang on, this is, a, this is an architecture and interior design residential project. Obviously, for some people who went, went to their architects and said, we want you to propose a building to us which is exciting, which is going to push some boundaries, probably is going to be hard to go make, but it's actually a statement house. Awesome project. It's interesting to see uh, brutalist style being used in a residential project. Yeah, and I think in, and what's interesting with this is the brutalist forms were at a very early stage of being able to go form concrete and to go, and to go work with concrete. The techniques that we've now got to go work with concrete are immensely greater. And it's great to go see the way that they've got these very complex form shapes. But then when you go look at the interior, the, those same curves, those same arcs manage to follow through the building. It's just a glorious place. Well, the de design challenge that they set was to make a building that would last for 100 years. I can't imagine that much is going to to stop it from lasting for a hundred, probably a thousand. Well, you know, let's say old concrete we know is one of the you know, most resilient materials. We actually don't know how to make that same grade of concrete. So we may not get to the thousand, but I think they're going to get to their, uh, get to their hundred years here. What I do like about it is that we've had a building which, although it was beautiful, was still relatively constrained as our first project as a proposition. This one here, it's right out there. You know, this is the dream project for, uh, for an architectural practice. And I'm sure that the team at Smart Design would have actually just loved the client to come through the door because it would have given them the chance to go breathe, bring all of their imagination to the project with very little constraint. And I think that's the important thing there is how do you get that balance between understanding the proposition that the client is going to be satisfied with and also the proposition that the studio are going to be satisfied with. Well, it's, it's quite interesting because one of my favourite architects is Tadeo Ando, who is a Japanese artist, uh, architect, sorry, who um, works purely in concrete, pretty much purely in concrete. And he's an untrained architect. 
and he specialises in creating structures that are very specifically made of um, concrete blocks based on the dimensions of tatami mats. So, um, and it, when looking at this building, I find myself wondering whether or not there was any influence from him in the design of this building. There's a beautiful uh, documentary series done a couple of years ago by a guy named Kirby Adams, which was called Everything's a Remix. And in that, Kirby went through, and, and he basically went through everything has some cultural reference based on the works before. The idea that you're doing anything new. So then he, he was going into the world of like music sampling. Well, if the music is based on the music of before, even if it's rock and roll, it might have changed genre. But there's going to be signatures that go back to other music. Do you pay the second or third or fourth derivative generation of it, or do you just pay the first generation? And so I think if you've got that architecture there, is it actually directly derivative or it might be a combination? They might have both come from the same source. So. Well, the thing about architecture, and I studied architecture, so um, it's quite interesting for me. Pretty much any set of plans that you'll find for any building anywhere will always have a set of precedents. So there's always precedents for every, for every building that gets made. Um, and a precedent in architecture is something that is a reference to something that was done really well in another piece of architecture. So I'm not saying that I think that um, specifically this building would have Tadeo Ando's um, precedence, but maybe it does. Um, but it's it's still very interesting because he's so prolific when it comes to concrete. Yeah. And look, I'm sure that uh, William Smart there would be um, very flattered to go think that, uh, that he was uh, giving some reference there to Tadeo. So why don't we move across to our third project here, which is the Port Melbourne Football Club and Sporting Facility. This picked up silver in the, in the Melbourne Design Awards. And, and what I find really interesting about this building is, as we read through the project, the proposition that the architect had to make was we needed something that was engaging, was on budget, had energy efficiency to it. It was also meant to be resilient for people at a footy club. They're not the, say, the easiest buildings to put together because you know they're going to have a very harsh clientele that's going to come through them. But you also want to have it something that's fitting. It's in an outdoor green environment. You don't want to make it feel industrial. You want to have it something which, which fits into the environment there. And I think they've done that really well by softening it out, by bringing in the natural timbers, which are going to age and colour uh, over the years. Um, I think this is a, a great example, without spending a lot of money, of how do you go get a design project to come and mean something to a community. It's a very interesting building because it doesn't seem to interrupt the line of view of the football field, which I'd find I'm, I'd be very interested to see what happens when you actually have a game because it's almost like, I don't know, when you're a kid and you go to the football, especially when well, I'm from Sydney as a kid, and um, when you go to a when, – well, when I would go to a football game, a you know, rugby league game – there'd be hills, the hills that you'd sit on around the oval. And it sort of reminds me of the the hill on the mm -hmm. edge of the oval. Yeah. So there's something interesting about the way that it's not really detracting from the game itself, which is... Yeah, and so we, and we had... A, there was a period of time where football ovals, all codes, were these enclaves that were meant to be 360-degree experiences and that the crowd was, it was meant to be tens of thousands of people that were attending a game. 
And we've now got down to these community games, which are maybe in the hundreds to a thousand people that will be attending. So the facility becomes more contained. Mm -hmm. And I think you're exactly right. It's like, how do you make sure on a winter's day that people can be inside looking at the game? If it's good enough to go do that when you're going to the races, why not also give that level of comfort without interrupting the view of Mm. observing the game? Again, I think another example of some people who've been able to make a proposal back to the client that delivered on their brief and also made sure that, that experience was being delivered to the end user. Now, uh, Dan Murphy, so you were a little bit of a, um, a wine cellar aficionado or is it just architecture? <laughs> no, actually, I kind of don't drink at all. But um, I do have a friend who is a, he, I don't know, I can't remember what he called himself. He's not a sommelier, he's whatever is before a sommelier. And he told me that actually you don't need to be familiar. That's about pouring a wine and he's about tasting wine and knowing about wine. Anyway, he knows about wine. I'm sure that he would love this. Okay. And and I've got to admit, a little bit like cars, I'd probably drive a really average car compared to people who are car nuts. Same thing with wines. I, I I like some wine, but... This this isn't the place I'd go most weekends. But when I go look at it as a, as a purchasing experience, they've been able to go bring into a retail environment by using LED lights and making sure that the lights didn't feel like they were light fixtures. And I think that's a really interesting phase that we're coming up to in retail environments, which is how do you create the ambience and, and the atmosphere without actually having to go have extra devices to go do it. So in this case here, they've made sure that they've fitted into all of the joinery that's in the, in the environment, that that's where the LED lights are. They've made sure that they've chosen the right colour temperatures. They've given the people who are running the shop the opportunity to turn around and have different zones which are highlighted and low-lighted depending, you know, they might be having a night which is all about champagne or a night which is all around muskets and that they can go actually change the lighting intensity. I think they've brought into what could be rolled out into a range of retail and, say, suburban settings, an environment that you'd expect to go get at a cellar door somewhere, and that's a nice way to go bring that further experience closer to your customers' base. So I reckon it's tick-tick that they've been able to go work out the right things to do here. Well, it's interesting because at first glance, and probably from the street, you think it was a bar or a restaurant, probably a bar. And they could actually use this space as an event space quite easily, I'm sure. And I'm sure that's what they intended to do. So it completely changes the experience that you would have at, I may not drink very much, but I have been to a Dan Murphy's before and they don't look anything like this usually. No, so it's, it's a departure from the Dan Murphy brand, which is really interesting. Yeah. I'd be very interested to see what it actually looks like from the street. So it's a very interesting concept. So uh, heading into our next project. So we both talked about that we're not huge wine drinkers, but therefore we must be water drinkers here. Water New South Wales, government department. You said you um, grew up in, in Sydney. So these are probably the people who have been supplying water from when you were, when you were a young girl. They've uh, decided to go move their premises and uh, they've uh, headed out like just about everybody in Sydney seems to be doing where they're uh, deciding that they're decentralising or... What I find interesting is now we're finding Parramatta sits so closely to the demographic centre of Sydney that it's more they're centralising where their old offices were, where their customers were. And, uh, and so they've gone off to the team at Frost here and they've said, can you help us to create an environment? 
an environment which is going to express water but is also fun, engaging and also orientating people that they're in different parts of the building. That's a hard brief to go do. I think it is quite a difficult brief to take on, you know, to have that, to have the balance between the heritage of something like Water New South Wales and something modern that reflects what they do, that also can be directional, um, that brings into account all these, these different elements. It is a tricky job. And so what I think they've also been able to go do here is that they've been able to give reference to the brand for Water New South Wales, but you don't feel like you're in a branded environment. It's not like all the frosted glass has the company's logo everywhere. They've been able to work out how to go and express that in more abstract ways, which I think is useful because it must be really wearing going in somewhere where there's the same logo splattered all across the walls all day long. You really can't get more abstract than Memphis. No, no, Memphis is a pretty good reference for them here. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a lovely project. How about we say that's a big tick for the team at Frost for Water New South Wales? Lovely. Now, um, youth projects here. Uh, this was a non-for-profit that I wasn't aware of before we went in. We had a look at its uh, nomination here in the wards. Youth projects uh, goes and helps people who are struggling and need a little bit of a hand up. They make sure that they deliver a range of uh, inclusion and education programs to people. But they're in this tough space where you're going to have people who have probably seen every brand under the sun thrown at them. So they have to actually have something which is going to cut through. But it's also not meant to be a challenger brand in the marketplace. It's meant to be something which is meant to go and, uh, and greet people as th that they can belong to it. So I think what we've seen here that the team at uh, Principal Design have been able to go do for their client is give them something which it's going to stand out. So it's going to telegraph, we are this organisation. But it's also saying that they're contemporary. It feels fresh. It doesn't feel like it's something from 10 years ago. And I've got a feeling for these non-for-profits, they're not trying to go be retail brands, but they still are meant to be contemporary and something that doesn't have a rejection. It's a tough group to design for. Whether you're designing directly for young people or for people who work with young people, um, that's, that's always a, a difficult place to, to play. Exactly. And so you've got this organisation has a money flowing in, money flowing out dilemma like every non-for-profit. So the branding has to actually... It needs to have relevance to the people who have been given the hand up, but it's also got to make sure that the donors and the supporters feel that it's uh, right for them as well. These are not easy briefs to go, to go work on. No, absolutely not. And it, there's, there's so many, there's so many um, restrictions around briefs like this. Um, if from a designer's perspective, these are the types of briefs that you want to get because you want to work on them. Um, but it's not always easy because, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to take on pro bono or low bono projects. And then you have to deal with a number of stakeholders and number of audiences and all kinds of different restrictions. So I'd like to say to get anything done is sometimes a good outcome. There's an interesting thing there, which was when I used to run the, the studio, I'd look at clients that came in and the people that worried me the most were the ones who they were giving me a very large percentage of their available budget. Mm -hmm. 
because I knew that they didn't have a you know they didn't have an opportunity to make five propositions to the market over a two-year period, and that they'd find that three of them really resonated and two didn't. They had one proposition that was going to last for for three or four years. And they actually, they probably didn't have the money to go and roll it out as fast as you needed to. And so you're going, this, some of these decisions that we're making here are really complex. When I look at this project, it isn't overcomplicated. To go and apply this is going to be quite easy. It's dominant in its own right that it's actually going to stand out just about on anything. I think the team here who put it together, the team principal, that they've done a really good favour to their client because they've given them something which is not going to date too quickly, it's easy to apply, it stands out in its own right, and I've got a feeling that's a great non-for-profit brand. The next project we're going to go look at has a, has a totally different personality. It's actually got a really short shelf life that this, that this proposition needs to be in the marketplace. It's the Tribreaker rebrand, and it's, uh, it's done for Tribreaker Capital, and then this one's done by Principal's whereas the other one was done by principal. And I must say, we've got to be really careful with them. So we've nailed this here. This is principals. And what principals have done here with Tribeca is one of these classic dilemmas for property marketing, which is I've got 100 units. I might have 20 units. I might have 100. I might have 500 units of inventory that I'm trying to move. This brand will exist for somewhere between 12 months to three years. It's not a long-haul brand, but it's meant to be something that we can go package up the dreams and the aspirations of the people who want to go make one of their biggest decisions in life, which is where we're going to go live. Seeing there's so many of these property developments around, it becomes difficult to work out how you're different, or it's also difficult to work out how do you say you're the same, because somebody who was looking for this grade of property, this style of property, those hundred units of inventory sold in the other building, and now we need to have a new property with a new brand to go do that, to make that purchase with. I find these property marketing projects really interesting. The lens that you need to go and apply to them is very different than thinking about how do you go build a brand which is going to be a long haul longevity brand. It's meant to encapsulate quickly. It's meant to go give people an identity, but it's also meant to be a fair amount of the same as the others, but also different. That's a hard brief. Incredibly hard brief to differentiate. Strangely enough, I think that it's a space where people aren't really thinking about that type of communication. They're thinking about the house that they're going to buy or the, the apartment that they're going to live in for the next X or the property that they're buying for a investment. It's an interesting approach to take to make it feel more personalised or more about the community or more about the people rather than about the physical thing. And so I think, I think what I'm seeing with a lot of these property marketing projects is they're really an identity mnemonic that they're trying to go create. And it doesn't necessarily have to have its own meaning. It's more that it's got its own signature. In this case here, I think they've done that really well. They've worked out how to go bring in a style palette which is going to be identifiable for those 100 or 200 units of, of inventory that they need to go sell. Those people are going to remember which brochure it was that they were looking at. It's going to stand out for them. But I'd have to say, if I was in the property market six months down the track, I'd probably have, I'd have difficulty identifying it 
And that's the dilemma of property marketing. They are, in some ways, disposable brands, very style-based brands. It's an interesting topic because when you're talking about the future of brand, there's, I think at the moment there's this thinking that everything needs a brand. People need brands. Every, everything that exists needs a brand. This bottle of water needs a brand. But really, probably in the future we're going to be de-branding. Well, and we and we've seen that that there's there's now a couple of brands in the in the states who who have turned around and actually said, well, we're the no brand brand, which that is a brand in its own right because it's an identification of where they are. But they're trying to say, well, we're trying to unbrand it, but in the process, they've made one of the most successful brands. So we're simplifying what it means to be a brand, and I think that idea of being a mnemonic rather than actually being a symbol is probably where we're heading with a lot of this because sometimes we're a bit cluttered in our life. And, and I know if I go look in a lot of cases now, the brand for most people's hand cream that they want, it feels like it's come from an old-fashioned chemist or apotheque. Um, it doesn't seem to go have a L'Oreal brand on it or it doesn't have a, you know, um, an Aveda brand on it. It's now getting back to these very old-style bottles. So the brand is actually that it's just in an old, smoky glass container. Well... Putting my experience design hat on, I like to describe it when, it when it comes to brand experience, that experience is the delivery of the brand promise. And with this particular project, I'd be very interested to see if the building delivers on the brand promise that they make. So then that, that brings in the other area around property marketing, which is the placemaking side. And so the building is probably only 50% of the equation. It's going to have the environs around it. It's the sense of community. It's the proximity to those um, livability aspects of, you know, is it well articulated to transport? Is parking easy? Is the morning commute going to be a nightmare because the roads don't articulate well? And then is there safety and security? So you build up all those other placemaking parts. Is there a gym? Is there a theatre? Is there a, a school? All those things. And that's what we're seeing now poured into these property marketing placemaking projects. Again, we're a long way from thinking about a symbol, aren't we? We've got all these other things that go make up that mnemonic of that's what this project's about. They're making some very bold promises here with dreams and reimagining and living and stories and I definitely hope that it lives up to the to the hype because that'd be a pretty magical place to live and some of these are really coaxing and coaching triggers that are that are in there to go help people who are trying to go through a decision process they have no idea how to do this because it fits in you know you've got that irrational and rational and then you've got the 80% of all the decisions we make which is the non-rational buying a place to live in is a non-rational decision and if we start to go base it on rational and irrational we're never going to do it so bringing in those non-rational cues are helping people who are pretty disorientated in their buying process is that sleight of hand like a magician as part of that experience it might be but if it's actually been done to go help them to get closer to a decision to do it or not to do it then that's useful. If it's sleight of hand, which is tricking them and leading them to something that they, they might regret later, then that's a bad experience for everybody. 
and probably would affect the after-sale price and the reputation of, of the placemaking that's here, which we're seeing is now that medium and long term is very important in property marketing. Ah, the dark arts. I know. Let's try to make sure that we're doing nice things. So you said you put your experience designer's hat on. I need you to keep it on here because we're, we're now in a project here called Life, uh, the Life Broker website. Um, have you bought any life insurance? Not recently. Can I tell you, there aren't many experiences that, I had, that I've had in life where I felt like I've needed to have a shower afterwards. But income protection insurance or life insurance, the types of people they send out to go meet you, I felt dirty. I was like, do I really have to go through this channel? So to me, the idea of going to a website that gives me that selection where I'm actually able to do it without having to meet those sorts of people, I love. Fair enough. I, I may not have I may not have bought life insurance myself lately, but I have worked on insurance. You've known some people. Okay. <laughs> and I have known some people. And I also well, and I have and I have had a personal situation where it was very important because um, my mum's sister passed away very, very suddenly a few years back. And um, we didn't know, but she actually had life insurance, which was fantastic um, because it meant that it supported her family after she was gone. So uh, I've experienced firsthand just how important life insurance can be. Okay, so you've, you've had a, a personal experience where you've had to go and see the benefits uh, that that have come from life insurance this is about onboarding you in that process not actually the redemption or the claim part it's a minefield for people who aren't used to the terms um, comparison websites are really interesting but the point that i'm always really concerned about when it comes to comparison websites is who are they providing the value to are they providing the value to the person who's buying the insurance, or are they actually buying, or are they creating the value for the people who are selling the insurance? Now, all marketplaces need to do both sides, but it's actually, are you a buyer's advocate or a seller's advocate? And I think what we're seeing is that more of these digital portals, they're moving across to being the, the buyer's advocate, but we know that there's big dollars and some very skillful people putting pressure on them from the seller's side. And so I, I think that's always the, the challenge here when you're trying to go build these experiences. Yeah, absolutely. From a human perspective, you're trying to you're trying to think about the value for the for the person. And when it comes to life insurance, that's about very specific moments that you probably don't want to think about. So it's quite an awkward conversation to be having between business and people, where the business is trying to sell something that people don't want to think about. That's a pretty awkward situation. And so I think here with the opportunity for the Life Broker website is making sure that they keep that experience of that it's for the people who are buying the insurance paramount because there's always going to be lots of pressure coming from the people who have a perennial relationship rather than an infrequent or episodal relationship on the buyer's side. The sellers are there every day and that they're going to be trying to just gnaw away, give us a little bit more exposure here, display the feature that we want displayed rather than the feature that the person needs. And that's always the rub that takes place in these sorts of digital marketplaces. So I think an awesome project that's been done here by the team at Evolution 7, but as the life cycle goes, 
making sure that you're getting that experience right. That's the hard part, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, making sure that you're really giving people, uh, you know, people aren't stupid and we can't trick them that way. I don't think anybody's under any false pretenses that big business is trying to sell them things. The way that we deliver that to them, the way that they see the value in the thing that they're buying, that's paramount. And I think the more that we go have the win-win adult-adult relationship, which is you don't want to have me as a, as a customer that's upset and I don't want to be an upset customer. So that's, that's pretty easy for companies to understand. And more and more we're seeing that idea of the customer's interest first because nobody wants a customer who's aggrieved. Now, we've had a, some pretty heavy projects that we've gone through here from selling alcohol, we've turned around, we've been in government departments. Our last project here, I can see a smile on your face. I've already got a smile here. It's the Jackalope on the Mornington Peninsula. Have you had the opportunity to visit the, the Jackalope? No, but I'd like to. All right, well... I know some people at the Jackalope, so I reckon I can organise that for you. This project here is, it, it's got a great backstory to it. So the property had been around for a long time, and there was actually a design for the hotel that we're seeing here, this idea of a high-class, high-design proposition um, experience for people. The previous owners didn't have the money to go and bring that realisation to life. And so... In this case here, Lewis Lee, he came in as the investor. I believe it was a $40 million investment to go make this property come, to, come up to where it is. And what they did was though, they kept the staff who'd been working on the plans and that those staff then had this injection of capital to see their dream come to life. And I've got to tell you, it is one hell of a dream. This is a beautiful experience. But unlike some of the other projects that we've looked at where there's a lot of agency, this one's more about going and actually just experiencing and being entertained and being pampered. I, I think it's a gorgeous project. Well, as someone who stays in a lot of hotels, it certainly looks beautiful. And if the pictures do it any justice at all, I'm sure that staying there would be quite an experience, whether or not it's about just going and, you know, and having something that's just pure joy or whether it's more than that, because you know the, the the textures, the surfaces, the you know there's a lot of reflective surfaces, mirrors. It's quite a visceral experience, and the lighting, the there's a there's many sensory components to what they've done in this space. Have you stayed there? I haven't yet. You haven't yet. Okay. I haven't yet. Have you looked or yeah, not yet? Yeah. yeah. I've yet. What's the, what are the hotel rooms like? Um, lush. You'll have to go there. Oh, I'm definitely going to go All there. Right. So cool. Um, this project here done by the Car Design Group, Car do amazing work. But I think if we didn't have the likes of Lewis Lee who, who turned around and had the courage to go and buy a property that had some yet-to-be-realised plans, that to me is about one of the best propositions I've ever seen, which is... You can buy this property and it could look like this and then they've let the team go for it. I think that's fantastic. That brings us to the end of our projects. Amazing. Do you feel like you've been had? Because that's where we started off. <laughs> no, I don't feel like I've been had. That's but... good. All right. I just had to check. <laughs> Shows that I was paying attention. All right. But um, I've got a little bit of work I need to do here. So just hang with me for a sec. 
Obviously, I can't go do the awards wrap without my design giant that joins me every week. So thank you very much for being this week's giant. Now, thanks for having me. It's been fantastic <laughs> to have you on the awards wrap. But there's also, as a community, if we don't have the participation from the various design projects, we don't get ever get anywhere. This week, if it hadn't have been for the team at Mervac, at FJMT, K20, the Frost Collective, Principal and Principals, and also Evolution 7 and Car Design. They're the people who go help us bring this together and also to the community of the listeners, the people who, who get on board and that they uh, rate the projects and, and participate. Driven by Design is all about that community. So thank you everybody who's helped out. Thank you very much, Cheryl Lee here. This has been a fantastic podcast for me. And, th- and we've survived a, a tornado, a ty- a typhoon. typhoon, hurricane, whatever it was called today. It's amazing. And a tiny little plug for you as well, for the guys here in Hong Kong, because entries are still open for the Design Awards. Get your entries in. I'm sure the link will be around. We do. So what we do with the podcast is all of the project mentions are in there. We'll make sure there's a booking form through to the jackalope <laughs> so that people know that. And, of course, we never let anybody get away without knowing what awards they can go, go nominate into. So, as I always say, be driven by design. Indeed.